the Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. His most recent story is about a community in southeastern Oklahoma that managed to reverse a Texas investor's plan to build a hydroelectric storage facility along the Kayamichi River. Lionel, how did you come upon that story? I was sitting at my desk uh, in the office reading about uh, the rollout of rural broadband uh, in Oklahoma when Mike, our editor, put a printed email on my desk and said, hey, read this when you get the chance. Um, it turned out to be a news tip from a, quote, concerned resident of Pushmataha County. Uh, I read the email immediately and called the tipster for details the following day. And uh, what did you uncover after you talked to uh, the, the tipster? I found out that locals living in southeastern Oklahoma's Kayamishi River Basin had been fighting the construction of a particular hydroelectric storage plant proposed by Tomlin Energy LLC, a development company out of Addison, Texas, since about 2019. Uh, in April 2022, they got the opportunity to officially protest it with letters to the Oklahoma Water Resources Board which grants water rights to various entities for a variety of uses. Uh, the tipster, a librarian in Tallahena, was helping locals type out their protest letters. So she sent me the email, and then when I called her, she connected me with some of the folks whose land was at risk and had some greater concerns. So uh, before we talk about the, the locals' concerns, uh, what hydroelectric storage plant are we talking about? So... The technical term for it is closed loop hydroelectric storage. And basically what that means in this case is that there are three reservoirs pumping water between each other. Um, there's one relatively small one that's a 30 acre impoundment lake that would periodically fill with water from the Kayamishi River. Um, then there's a second massive one, and I'm talking 200 acres in surface area and 140 feet deep, uh, that's on the same elevation that would get, have water pumped into that one from the first one until it's full. And then there's a third one, way up, about a mile up the Kaimishi Mountains, um, that would take water, would have water pumped into it from the largest reservoir. And then once it's up there, it would sit and flow back down through some, gen through some power generating turbines. And that is how you would create the energy. So this particular plant would have had three going at once and one kind of storing energy, if you will. So what had the locals so worried about uh, constructing that? There were three main concerns I was able to identify in in reading not only the email, but the protest letters, uh, which included words from Choctaw Nation Chief uh, Gary Batten and, and leaders of the city of, of Antlers, which is nearby in that area. Um, the first, it was redirected overflow in the river. Many hay fields, ranches, and farms in the area rely on natural overflow patterns to be sustainable without irrigation. And that's important because no irrigation or no need for irrigation means no need for water rights from the Oklahoma Water Resources Board. So people can farm their land with the natural patterns of the valley. The second concern that people had was the destruction of their private wells. There's a lot of really old wells that are almost 100 years old in the area. And to build these huge reservoirs, there would have to be a lot of blasting because there's shale and sandstone down there. 
And so that blasting, the impact of that blasting uh, was a concern for people who had these wells that they relied on. The third and last one uh, was a concern for reduced tourism. There's kayak tours and restaurants and some other businesses that rely on the river's appeal um, for locals to make money. And having a big energy facility and power lines and um, these three massive lakes was a concern for what that appeal would be to tourists later down the road. Right. And uh, but the potential uh, negative effects to uh, the locals down there, I would assume, could have been offset by some benefits of uh, building this facility. Tell me about those. Yeah. So there were a few promises that were made by uh, Dan Tomlin Jr., the owner of Tomlin Energy LLC. Um, He's a land investor. He's a developer. And he started telling the locals um, primarily County Commissioner John Roberts of Prismatahawk County and Representative Justin Humphrey, Republican from Lane, House District 19, uh, about $12 million in tax revenue each year for the county, for Push County, 500 jobs for five years, and then another 70 after the construction is complete to keep the plant going. Newly paved roads, an ambulance service, all this stuff sounds really good. Push County needs a lot of this stuff. Um, there was nothing in writing. There was no proof. And that had the locals concerned because, um, in their words, whoever installed the windmills that are in that area right now made very similar promises, and they're still waiting to reap those benefits. So uh, it's rare that a community would be uh, unanimous in their view of that kind of project. Was there some local support? Honestly, when I went down to Tuscahoma um, and Tallahena and Antlers and Clayton, that area, um, I wasn't able to find a single person walking on the streets, going to businesses that was for this project. <laughs> the only two people that I spoke to down there that are for this are Pushmataha County Commissioner John Roberts and uh, District 19 House Representative uh, Justin Humphrey. Okay, and then uh, ultimately uh, the uh, investors decided uh, not to go forward with this project. How did that decision come about? Yeah, so it's funny, you know, I was sitting at uh, in the office with a draft complete and was making those this final fact-checking phone calls. Um, thankfully, I called uh, Dan Tomlin Jr., the guy in charge of the, the project, and was asking him about some federal incentives that he had mentioned that were saying that he had to hire locals um, to get these tax breaks from the federal government. Um, and so I was asking him about this, and he was like, let me just save you some time. Uh, we called the whole project off. And so when I asked him why, the first thing he said was because of the Choctaw Nation's opposition. Um, among the 200 plus protest letters that were submitted um, after Tomlin asked for water rights from the Oklahoma Water Resources Board were the Choctaw Nation and a few other city entities. And in, in uh, Tomlin's words, once the, the Indians are getting you, that's a quote, um, it's the last straw. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read Lionel's story about the uh, hydroelectric storage plant that isn't going to happen uh, in southeastern Oklahoma, along with the rest of his investigative work on the race and equity beat at OklahomaWatch.org. I'm with Ari Fife, who covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. She went uh, on a recent ride-along with a Better Way program, which is designed to help direct people who panhandle in Oklahoma City and Tulsa 
toward long-term employment, but it struggled to keep up with demand in recent months. Ari, can you tell us more about the program and how it started? Yeah, so it first started in Tulsa in 2018, and it was modeled after a similar program in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that actually ended in 2019. And then the OKC program started in September of 2021 after city leaders saw the success in Tulsa. And both Oklahoma City and Tulsa have implemented pretty heavy restrictions on panhandling, haven't they? Right. And both have actually been implemented before the Better Way programs were created. Um, Oklahoma City passed an ordinance in 2015 that banned sitting or standing on certain medians. And then Tulsa passed a similar ordinance in 2017 that banned stepping or standing on medians to get donations. Um, a federal appeals court ruled in 2020 that the Oklahoma City law violated free speech and it wasn't reinstated, but the Tulsa law was modified to comply with the Constitution. So how does the Better Way program work? So the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma runs both programs. They have vans in both cities that pick up people who panhandle three days a week and take takes them to parks to pick up litter for $65 a day. And on the program staff also are case managers who work with people who are interested in finding long-term work um, and kind of helps them assess the barriers that they might have to employment. And then an employment specialist works with those people too to help them actually find a job. And it's worth noting too that um, in 2020, the program had almost 40 permanent job placements. So uh, you did a ride-along. Was that in one of the vans? And, and if so, what did you see? It was. And um, on the day that I was there, there were about 12 people waiting in line to participate. In the van, only fit eight people. I talked with Max Murphy, who said that he'd participated in the program once, but he said that he'd waited in the line close to 20 times. Um, he and his mom first became homeless in Los Angeles, and they moved here about a year ago. His mom has since been housed, but Max is not. But he's been able to find friends who let him stay with them for short periods of time. He's hoping to find long-term work through the program. And uh, did you talk to anybody who was on the van? Yeah, so I talked with Arzel Gaddis in Washington Park. He experienced homelessness for about a year, but he was recently housed. Um, he participated in the program about three times in 2021. And over that period, he said he saw the word of mouth about the program spread rapidly. And it became much harder to participate in the program. So he was very happy to be able to participate again in 2022. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of demand for the program, uh, but it also sounds like a lot of people are being left behind, unable to participate. Why is that? Yeah. So from what I understand, it mostly comes down to a lack of funding and resources. So the cities of Oklahoma City and Tulsa um, fully fund both programs, but they don't really have the means to expand. So there's only one van in each city, and so that severely limits um, the program's capacity for participants. And it sounds like uh, then that it's more of a, tran a transportation problem than, say, 
the ability to pay the $65 a day or, or having the work available. It's, it's having the transportation to the work. That's the issue. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Did the program staff have uh, any thoughts on, on how that might be alleviated? Yeah. So kind of on that same note, I talked with Trudy Eastless, who's a case manager for the Oklahoma city program. She said that again, it, really does just come down to um, a need for more transportation. She estimated that the program in her city would probably need at least one more van to pick up the people who are already waiting in line, and then another van to scour the city for people who um, might not know about the program but would want to participate. All right. Well, thanks, Ari. Long Story Short uh, is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. As you know, you can read Ari's story about the Better Way program and all her other investigative work at our website, oklahomawatch.org. Paul Moneys has been looking into the state technology purchases and came across some problems with a vendor that provides business and professional licenses for many state agencies. Now, Paul, why did the state move to this new software vendor? Yeah, so th- this was a big push for to modernize state government and technology spending. Um, a lot of agencies have a lot of regulatory roles, including uh, occupational licenses. And so back in 2020, uh, the state had signed a, a contract uh, with this vendor called Thentia, to provide kind of some updating and online um, processing of some of these applications for these agencies. And which agencies are using Thentia's system? Right now, more than a dozen agencies, including um, the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, which is probably the largest user, uh, the Real Estate uh, Commission, the Board of Chiropractic Examiners, Osteopathic Examiners, Boards of Psychiatry, and the um, Council on Law Enforcement Education and Training as well. Now, the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority uh, had a big outage earlier this year, didn't they? Was that related? That's right. They had moved to the the Centio platform earlier this year, and uh, they had a big outage for a couple of days over September, which caused some delays for some of their licensees. And don't forget, they have uh, more more than 374,000 patient licenses to keep track of for renewals and and new ones as well, and more than 11,000 businesses licenses for processors and growers and dispensaries as well. So that kind of caused some problems for some of the folks renewing and trying to get some stuff going on there. And now the Council on Law Enforcement Education and Training, or CLEAT as it's commonly known, uh, has said that it is also having problems with the system, right? That's right. Yeah, they, they moved to this platform in July and uh, they tell me that it's it's been working well, but a, a crucial piece of it to kind of keep oversight of some of the licenses on a broader basis is not working. It hasn't worked for a number of months now. Um, it's kind of mostly affecting their um, piece that does continue education tracking. So a lot of the licensed peace officers, security guards, private investigators that go through CLEAT for training and certification, um, they have to do continuing education every year. And those are requirements to keep their licenses. And they can't do kind of system-wide searches on departments who have done compliance on their own officers with the licenses. And it's, it's a big problem for them. And they've actually put a note out to their people saying, we're trying to work with the vendor on this and they haven't really, really caused, any problem, caused any solutions yet. So what's CLEAT telling officers about their continuing education? 
So yeah, they're telling officers they still have to complete their requirements, obviously, and they, they can enter them individually. They just can't track them widespread. So say the department can say, well, we have four out of the 12 people that have to do it um, and kind of send them reminders on their licensing and keep it up to date. And so it's kind of more of a manual basis to kind of keep track of the officers individually. Now, you spoke to a law enforcement training officer about those problems. What what did they say? That's right. Yeah, I spoke to a lieutenant who kind of organized, organized his training at one of the universities in the state, and he has 11 officers that he kind of tracks training for. He said that the Cynthia system works really well uh, for individual officers and kind of making it faster. It was a paper-based project, project before that took several weeks or months to kind of track. And so it's better from the officer's standpoint, but tracking it and making sure it's working is still not working for him. And he's got some workarounds, but he said the vendor hasn't given him any kind of detail on when they might be fixed. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about the the bigger picture with the problems with the software vendor and state government. And then also, uh, once the story published, it got a surprising amount of feedback. So uh, talk to us a little about that. Yeah, well, the, the, this is a big part of the Governor Kevin State in his first term, you know, had a big technology push to modernize state government. Uh, this was part of it. Obviously, they want to have a consistent one vendor to kind of do licensing. And the, the freedom with this system particularly is that they can work with each individual agency to kind of customize it for their needs. Now, if we kind of step back, um, you know, the agency uh, doesn't really charge their users for this, but there is a cost to the agency as well. Um, Centia gets uh, 20 cents per license. So that adds up quite a bit if you're talking about hundreds of thousands of licenses at the Medical Marijuana Authority and then all the peace officers in the state. So it's, it's a pretty big business proposition for this one vendor, and it is a sole contract for them. Uh, you know, agencies don't have to get into it, but they can choose to, to, to join it if they want to. But it sounds like it's come with a couple of snags along the way. And I, I talked to several folks at some of the agencies, and they said, look, this is a, a good system. We just wish the bugs had gotten figured out before we started using it. Uh, but they still maintain that they're they're ready to kind of keep working with the system. And in fact, the, the state tells me that um, they've kind of revised their statewide contract with this vendor to kind of get some reimbursements on some of the functions that are not uh, working that were promised before. Uh, you mentioned uh, that the uh, company gets 20 cents per license, but you also mentioned that some of those agencies were still doing this by hand uh, before the system was implemented. So I think uh, in a lot of those cases, perhaps just the labor cost uh, savings within the agency uh, more than makes up for what they're paying the vendor, wouldn't it? Yeah, and that, that's a business case for the vendor that they've made to the agencies as well, because the, the agencies heads have some of the agencies have have made some testimonials on their website saying this is a great system. Um, you know, we, we're well really happy with the way it transitioned from our paper based system. Um, it's just that there's some come along with some snags along the way, and they, they admit that they probably expected some bugs as you transition to any kind of new system. Um, and, you know, they said, one person told me they kind of went from the stone age to the information age from their processing standpoint. So they're, they're happy with it, but it does come with some costs along the way with these bugs and the state is working with the vendor and the vendor appears to be kind of reimbursing some of those functions that are not working yet. And have they suggested that uh, those problems with the system are, are things they can rectify, that, that they'll get them working sometime soon? Well, and they've promised agencies that, but they haven't really given them any timeline so far. So we haven't kind of seen any kind of, we'll get this fixed by them in the first quarter. They're saying we're working as hard as we can um, to fix these. But obviously, you know, their stuff has happened over the holiday season as well. And some of these continuing education requirements have to be tracked on an annual calendar basis. 
So it has the big push today that year for tracking some of this stuff has caused some kind of headaches and heartburns at some of these agencies. Got it. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, Paul's story about that vendor and all his other coverage of state government on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. This is Oklahoma Watch Executive Director Ted Struley. During the months of November and December, Oklahoma Watch is eligible for a matching grant from the Miami Foundation under their Newsmatch program. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar every single donation given to a nonprofit news organization like ours that's participating in the program. That means that if you donate $5 a month, we get a match for $60. They match the entire year. If you can offer $10 a month, they'll match the whole year's worth $120. For $50 a month, they'll match $300. Every nickel you give is matched by the Miami Foundation as long as we receive it between November 1st and December 31st. And as a bonus, if you happen to be a brand new donor, we get an additional grant if we reach 100 new donors in the last two months of the year. If you enjoy the work we do at Oklahoma Watch, if you appreciate our investigative reporting, our holding government officials accountable, Take just a moment, please, and visit us at oklahomawatch.org, find our support page, and pledge $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, whatever you're comfortable doing. Every dollar of that will be matched, and if you're a new donor, we get a bonus on top of that. We're nonprofit. We don't sell ads. This is what keeps us going and what keeps our newsroom uh, keeping the public's business public. Thanks again.